Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Great. Happy to be here. Uh, yesterday uh, was a was a great moment for um, for Gordon and Maddie. Very seminal moment in their lives. I I just I've got to tell a little bit about Gordon and my relationship with him. You know, I've been here for eleven years. Um, so when I got here, Gordon was. 14 years old in seventh grade. Um, not long after, or maybe during confirmation class, when Gordon learned that members of the church were my boss, he began to tell me repeatedly that you're fired. <laughs> and he would like to say that as often as he possibly could. Anytime I made a mistake or messed up, he would say, Dan, you're fired. Um, but I think he actually did kind of like me a little bit. Um, a few years after that, February 2nd, 2011, usually good friends will come and visit you in the hospital after you have a baby. Gordon came before we had a baby. Uh, on Wednesday evening, we'd usually at a time of our high school guys would get together and have dinner. Uh, Megan and I are in the hospital. I'd send a message to everybody, hey, not going to be able to do it tonight. We're in the hospital. going to have a baby. I get a response back from Gordon, what's up? <laughs> Well, not, 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 not too much is happening. Well, hey, can I come visit? Sure. Uh, so he, he came on up and hung out in labor and delivery with us for a little while um, until the woman across the hall started going into um, labor. She was having her, her baby. And you could just hear the screaming and the moaning, and it got louder and louder. You know, about every minute you would hear some blood-curdling noise coming from the the room across the hall, and you could see Gordon's face getting paler and paler <laughs> until finally he said, you know what, you guys have a good time, I've got to go. Uh, about an hour after that, Kaylin was born. So uh, we, we had um, great fun with Gordon. Uh, so it's exciting to see uh, him and, and, and what he has turned into, um, who he has become, and, and he's made an excellent choice uh, in Maddie. Uh, so this morning we are uh, finishing up our six weeks long series uh, on marriage. And appropriately enough, we have extra wedding cake downstairs in the lobby um, for, uh, for us for coffee moments after this. But if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And the reason that this is going to sound so familiar is because we've used this passage probably every week for four weeks. Intentionally. And if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. Uh, Father God, we are so grateful for this time that we have together. We're grateful for your word and for the truth that it has for us and the promise and the hope that it has for our relationships. Not just our relationships with our spouses. And not just our relationships with each other, but, Lord, our relationship with you. And we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to your truth, and that you would use it to penetrate into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, will begin again in verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
And this is God's inspired word for us this morning, so please be seated. Now, last week we talked about some of the misconceptions, some of the false expectations that we can have for marriage. Uh, about how, and, and how believing the wrong things can kind of set us up for failure later on. And how understanding that marriage is a lifelong commitment that helps to sanctify us or make us holy. And it requires, the work, it requires work to help put things in the right perspective. That's going to pay dividends for us down the road. And so we're not here today to focus on past mistakes or to point out areas where people mess up. But the ultimate goal here is to provide hope. It's to the hope for the marriages in this room, the hope for those who are considering marriage, hope for our world, and ultimately hope for the bride of Christ. And so, you know, in the wedding, in a marriage, we start with the wedding, which at the beginning is this great big celebration. You know, it's a time of excitement. It's a time of getting your family and your friends together and celebrating. Although last week we kind of mentioned about, um, you know, if you're a professional athlete, a, a football player, you know, what, what happens when you get drafted into the NFL, that's, that's not the ultimate, um, that's not the culmination of your athletic career, hopefully. You know, that's just the beginning of what is to come. And after you get drafted to play on a team, that's when the real work happens in the same way with our marriages. At the wedding, that's the beginning of what's going to be a lifelong work commitment. But this isn't something that should scare us. You know, just like if you're playing football, the ultimate goal is not to get drafted. It's, it's for that greater glory. And in the wedding, the, the wedding is not the ultimate goal of a relationship, but that's just the beginning of a lifelong commitment that will ultimately bring us far greater glory. And the glory and the payoff is incredibly worth it. So that's ultimately our hope for marriage. It may not be what we think it is, but what it has the potential to be is deeper and richer and fuller than what we could ever dream and hope for. And why is that? Well, it's because, as we just read here a moment ago, the idea behind marriage, the secret of marriage, has always been Christ in the church. That's the mystery that Paul's referring to, Christ and the church. As Randy mentioned a few weeks ago, marriage is theology because it gives us the taste of something greater. It gives us the taste of what is to come. It gives us the taste of something beyond us, and that taste is Christ and his bride. And we get that small taste now, that glimpse of the love that Christ has for his church. We get to see a little bit of that in marriage. And his command now is for the husband and wife to, for the husband to love his wife and the wife to respect her husband. And sometimes, though, we can hear those, a lot of these depressing statistics like we've been uh, hearing the last few weeks. Um, we can start to believe some of those false expectations. We think, you know, it's not really worth it. And we look at the marriages of the people that we know, and we don't want to get burned or hurt like they have. You know, love is a risk. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it, in, in, keeping it intact, we must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the coffin or casket of your selfishness. 
But in that casket, dark, safe, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least, or, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. So the reality is that love is difficult. It's not easy. And self-giving love doesn't come naturally to any of us. And that is the possi- there is always the possibility that our, uh, that our love will not be returned. Okay? It's always a little bit risky. But there is a way to know and to understand that true love. And that's to know the love of Christ. And Timothy Keller puts it this way. He says, it's impossible for us to make major headway against self-centeredness and move into a stance of service without some kind of supernatural help. Remember, our tendency is to think of ourselves first, to think of ourselves, uh, to, to think of our, to think of ourselves with our best intentions, right? Our best intentions, and then to look at others and judge them off of our worst assumptions. So as Miss Charlotte so poignantly put it for us last week, you know, what happens when you take two sinners and you put them together in a lifelong commitment? What happens? You get a mess. You know, you get a mess. And which is absolutely true. And there's something that we have to consider with this. No matter how hard you try, you will never marry the right person. Okay, no matter how hard you try, you will never marry the right person. This is how Stanley Hauerwas puts it. He says that the assumption is there. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry. That if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. In fact, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. (laughs) The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married to. We always marry the wrong person because we never can escape that sin nature that all of us have. And because of that sin nature, we ourselves are always the wrong person as well. And yet, as a Christian, we're not just called to love our spouses only if they love us. We're not just called to love our spouses if they deserve it. We're not just called to love the person who respects me. We're called to love the person who cherishes me. We're called to love, period. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, Christ has set us free from sin so that in freedom, through love, we can serve one another and we can fulfill the whole law by loving our neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said the greatest commandment was, you know, to, love your Lord, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Essentially this, to love God and to love others. Those are the great commandments. And so we don't marry the right person, or to put it another way, we, we always marry the right person. But honestly, it doesn't matter. You know, statistically, if you think about it, who has the happiest and longest marriages? Arranged marriages. And it's not because their parents know the children so much better. 
In fact, a lot of these arrangements are made before the kids are even born. But what happens with arranged marriages is two people go in, they don't have this romantic assumption that life will always be perfect. They go in understanding that it's going to require work to make this relationship work. So the command is not to love the person that you're married to as long as they do the things that make you happy. It's not dependent on marrying that right person to begin with. So if we go in with this right mindset, the the marriage can be absolutely wonderful. If we commit to love, so there's three things that we need to know about love. Three things. Number one, the purpose to love is gratitude for what Christ did for us. The purpose is gratitude for what Christ did for us. This is a response to what Jesus did for you. Jesus said that for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now why did Jesus come to this earth? Well, he did it to serve and to give his life. That was his mission. You know, who was that for? Was it for the righteous? Was it for the godly or the obedient ones, the ones who made him happy? No. It's for the sinners and the liars and the thieves and the murderers and the adulterers and the outcasts and the self-righteous. For the skeptics and the scoffers, for the ugly, for the unlovable, those are the ones that Jesus came to die for. He did it for us. He did it for us. 1 John 4 tells us that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, he didn't love us because we were worthy of his love. He didn't love us because we had done something to make him love us. But we're worthy because he loves us. And therefore we can love because what? He first loved us. So we love as a response to his love. Out of gratitude. That's the purpose. The reason that we are able to love. Our, our love for Christ Keller writes again, he says that you only discover your own happiness after each of you has put the happiness of your spouse ahead of your own in a sustained way in response to what Jesus has done for you. So the purpose is gratitude. The second thing that we need to know about love is that the power of love is through Christ in us. The power is through Christ in us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 through 29, it says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the other great mystery, is that if you are a believer, you have the power of Christ inside of you. He gives us the ability to love and the power to love because he is love and he's already at work inside of us. That sometimes we think, you know, I, I can't actually do this. I, I can't do it on my own. And that's the whole point, is that we can't. And that's why God gave us the Spirit. Keller writes again that only if you have learned to serve others by the power of the Holy Spirit... We have the power to face the challenges in marriage. So the power is in you because Christ is in you, if you're a believer. And finally, the last thing to to know about love is that the pattern to love is in Christ himself. 
He is the ultimate example. The pattern for love is Christ. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, says that do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So if you want to know what real life looks like, if you want to understand the pattern for love, you have to look at Jesus. Consider what he did. What's it say here? He emptied himself and he humbled himself. He took the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, most likely, we're not ever going to be called to go to the cross for our faith, but we are still called to humble ourselves and to become servants. You know, what does it mean to be a servant? What does that look like? Well, Jesus gave us the ultimate example in John chapter 13, which uh, right before the Last Supper, when he sits down and washes his disciples' feet. John 13, 1 said that when, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Now, Jesus loved them all the way to the end. This is the greatest act of human service that he would, would be able to do for his disciples. He sits down to have dinner with them. And when he sits down, what should the host, somebody was supposed to provide a foot washing for the people, for the guests at his meal, right? But the host himself would never, ever do this. He'd always have a servant or someone that would, that would take on this task for them. For them. Now, here uh, we've done Monday, Thursday services before. We've done foot washing service on Monday, Thursday. We're not doing that this year. And, and, and it's, we kind of get a, a small glimpse when we do that for each other. But, but I'm afraid sometimes if we do that, we sort of miss out on actually how humiliated Jesus would have been to do this. Now, at, at Megan and I's wedding, we actually wash each other's feet. And, but we, you know, as a, as a commitment to serve each other, but we still didn't quite grasp what this really meant, right? What did it mean to wash someone's feet? Well, in Jesus' day, this was the job of the lowest, most menial servant. This is the job that nobody else would ever dare to do. And we know that because John the Baptist, as Jesus comes to get baptized, John the Baptist tells us that I'm not even worthy to untie or to wash the feet of Jesus. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So this was a menial task. Now, when we think about it, we kind of think, ooh, yuck, gross. You know, some of us are just, we have those foot phobias. We don't want to touch them. We don't want to see them. Um, but imagine, you know, first century, you're walking. You, you may not bathe very often. You know, you don't, you don't travel in vehicles. You don't wear socks and shoes. Um, and so walking around in sandals and the feet are the dirtiest part of your body. And here comes Jesus making himself the lowest servants. And we see that as he goes around washing the disciples' feet that they're all speechless None of them say anything until he gets to Peter who objects. And Peter says, Lord, I cannot let you do this. Because he understands how great an embarrassment that this is for Jesus to wash his feet. 
Think about whose feet Jesus washed. He washed his disciples' feet. He washed the feet of Judas, who's about to betray him. He washes the feet of Peter, who's about to deny him. He washes the feet of Thomas, who doubts him. He washes washes the feet of all the other disciples who leave him and abandon him at the greatest moment of need. And that is the type of service that we are called to, to have for our spouses. That's the example that Jesus calls us to follow. So, so foot washing today, it, it, we think about it, it's not quite demanding of us enough. It's not quite demeaning enough for us. We, we, we think about it and we don't quite understand what it took for Jesus to do that. So what does this pattern of love actually look like? Well, this is a commitment to put the interests of others before ourselves. Uh, Chris Spielman was an NFL linebacker for the Buffalo Bills. Um, all pro, uh, played awesome. Um, right in the middle of his prime, during his football career, his wife came down with breast cancer. And, and he stepped away from football t- for a year to take care of his wife. And, and when people asked him why he did it, he said, well, I do it because she's taking care of me all this time. This is the least that I can do. It's the least that I can do. And, and that's the type of service that we're called to love, for, to have for each other, is to, to put the interest of someone else before our own interests. And Christ shows us this with his actions and his spirit and in his attitude. See, it all lines up. This isn't a begrudging love. He doesn't get up from the table and go wash feet because nobody else is doing it. He doesn't do it to embarrass his disciples. He does it out of love. It's a passionate love, a motivated love. And what is his reward for this? His reward was it so that we could be with him forever. And so what is our motivation for faithfully loving with purpose and power and in the pattern of Christ? Well, so that one day we will be with him. Revelation chapter 21. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. See, one day we will be with him forever, and what a glorious day that will be. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he said, The light, momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, God calls us to love in this way now, and, and, and it will never be worth it, right? It, it, we look at it later on, it, it, we just won't be able to understand. I always think, you know, I. We'll never be thinking, I love too much. We'll never have that regret. We, d- we love with our words and our actions. It's not only done for him, but to him. And we love him by loving others. And the ultimate hope, though, for our marriage, the ultimate hope is grace. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. See, grace covers all of our sins. Grace gives us the desire to reciprocate the love of the Father because he first loved us. Grace 
means that his mercies are new every morning, and when we fail, the next day we get a chance to try again. It's not too late to turn things around. It's not too late to commit our lives to serving others and serving Christ. And it's not too late to begin living with the purpose and the pattern and the power of Christ. Timothy Keller writes, Do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus, and the rest will follow. Again from 1 Corinthians, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, what did he do? He loved us. What is he calling us to do? He's calling us to serve him through loving others. Let us pray. Father God, we are called to love in the same way that you have loved. And Lord, you set us the greatest example. Not only by taking the form of a servant, but also by giving up your very life for us. And Lord, you have called us to do the same for others. Lord, you have called husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Lord, you have called wives to love their husbands in the same way. And Lord, you have called all of us to love you by loving others. So Lord, we pray that you would give us the power to do that. Lord, we're so grateful for this hope that you have, hope of something better. Lord, not just that we do this for our spouses, but Lord, ultimately that we do this for you so that one day we can be with you forever and experience the full, true love of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.